And once again, good morning. Can I have a turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 7? John chapter 7. Now, before we uh, actually get into it, let me just say this. Um, people may differ in what they believe about Jesus, but one thing everyone has to admit Jesus went around making some pretty astonishing claims about himself. Let me give you a flavor of this. He claimed that he came down from heaven. He claimed that he would die and by his own power would rise again. He claimed to be the only way into heaven. He claimed to be the person by whom every person's salvation or condemnation would be delivered or determined, I'm sorry. He claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. He claimed to be God in a human body. He claimed to be the source and giver of life. He claimed along with God to be worthy of human worship. He claimed to be the one who would raise up every person from the dead someday. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life, and that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, you have to admit, those are some pretty lofty and astonishing claims that make about yourself. In fact, these claims are so astonishing, so incredible, so radical, that they forced people back then to take a stand regarding Jesus Christ. He was a radical. And uh, when he confronted people, he often would say things that were true. Obviously, he didn't say anything that was not true. But the statements he made were designed oftentimes to bring people to a point of crisis, if you will. I'm naming this message the Jesus crisis. Because Jesus has a way of coming along and intersecting with a person's life when things are often going very well, sometimes not so well. But he has a way of forcing you to make a decision about him. He brings us to a point of crisis. He's a radical. You can't be neutral about a radical. And uh, he, he created a point of crisis for all he came in contact with as to who he was and what they were going to do about him. Back then, of course, public opinion was divided and hotly deba debated, I might add. I mean, we see different opinions about Jesus emerge in the Gospels, especially in John 7. Was, he, was this man a deranged egotist, or was he exactly who he claimed to be? Now, I like John 7 for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I like it is because in it we have a cross-section of the population in and around Jerusalem weighing in on this very issue, who they thought Jesus Christ was, different opinions. And, of course, I'd like to look also at the different kinds of people that held to each of these opinions. Look, it's important that we understand what the Lord Jesus Christ said about himself and what we are going to do about it. So let's take a look, and I want to start off, first of all, by looking at verses 1 and 2. It says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. In Leviticus 23, God gave the children of Israel seven feasts that they were to observe throughout the year. 
the first three in the spring, one in the summer, and the last three in the fall. They are as follows. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits, those were the spring feasts. You have Pentecost, which was a feast in the early summer. And in the fall, you had trumpets, Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And so verse 2 tells us that the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand, which means it was now fall in Israel. The Feast of Tabernacles, also known as Sokot, which means booths or temporary dwelling place, uh, places, i.e. tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast that began on the 15th of the Jewish month of Tishri, which corresponds to our late September, early October, and it ran through the 21st of the month. The first day and the day after the feast, also known as the eighth day, were high holy days, Sabbaths. No work was to be accomplished or done on those two days. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was and still is today both an agricultural and a memorial feast. It's an agricultural holiday because it takes place at the time of the great fall harvest, as I said, in the fall, the great fall harvest, when God had blessed his people with an abundance of crops. I mean, if you live in an agrarian culture, uh, based on you know, agriculture, rural farming area, and so on, uh, harvest time throughout history for these kind of people uh, was the most joyous time of all the year. I mean, obviously, depending on the harvest, depending on whether or not you were to make it another year, okay? And, uh, of course, God always provided for his people. It was a great time of celebration because of the great harvest that was collected, brought in, and that's why it's also known as the Feast of Ingathering, as they gathered in uh, the harvest that God had provided. It was a, a harvest festival time, okay? Time of great thanksgiving for all God had provided to his people. Uh, in fact, even to this day, guys, the Feast of Tabernacles is the most joyous of all the Jewish holidays. Back in Jesus' day, uh, Jewish pilgrims from all over the world would uh, come, no, the known world would come to Jerusalem for this feast. One author described the scene this way. He said, and I quote, Upon arrival in Jerusalem, the pilgrims focused their energies upon building booths for the feast. By the afternoon of Tishri 14, thousands upon thousands of leafy booths lined the streets and dotted the surrounding fields and hills. All were carefully located within a Sabbath day journey of the temple, about a little more than half a mile. At sundown, the blast of the shofar, the ram's horn, from the temple announced the arrival of the holiday. A sense of increased excitement fell over the city as darkness came. Myriads of twinkling campfires studded the surrounding countryside like an intricate lacework of tiny amber jewels. Well into the night, muffled laughter and cheery conversation could be heard drifting over the night breezes, end quote. What a wonderful holiday. If I had my way, we'd get rid of Halloween and plug in the Feast of Tabernacles. Of course, that's coming. So it was an agricultural feast, but the Feast of Tabernacles was also an historical feast commemorating Israel's 40-year wilderness wandering. And uh, this was a time where they lived in these well, intense temporary structures. That's the idea behind a tabernacle. It was a temporary structure. Uh, that's why... Uh, People worshiped God for many years 
uh, at the um, tabernacle in the wilderness, uh, the tent of meeting, portable structure. Of course, that was replaced by the temple eventually uh, under Solomon. But uh, this was a temporary kind of a thing. And that's what happened in the wilderness. God's people lived, they, they, they hadn't gone into the promised land where they could build themselves permanent houses. So they were left to wander as the Shekinah glory led them. They were left to wander throughout the wilderness for those 40 years. Of course, whenever the Shekinah glory uh, picked up the cloud by uh, day and the pillar of fire by night and began to move, the people broke camp and began to move with it. When the Shekinah glory stopped, that was their cue to start setting up their tents, making camp. And so all those, uh, those many years were celebrated at the time of the um, Feast of Tabernacles how God provided for them food from heaven, manna, but also how he provided water for all those years in the wilderness. Of course, desert water is extremely important, and God provided them with water that entire time. They never went thirsty. You see, the idea behind this as a memorial feast was God wanted them to remember the hardships that their ancestors endured, that their kids might have the promised land to enjoy. And God never wanted the new generations to forget what their forefathers endured. You know, kind of like our generation doesn't really remember or is maybe is not even taught how what's called the greatest generation, the World War II generation, how they fought and died that we might have freedom. We should be teaching our kids more about that. And God was one who never wanted the new generation to forget what their forefathers endured, that they might have a land full of blessing and plenty. And so he instituted this feast in part as a memorial. Here's what God said in Leviticus concerning this feast. Leviticus 23, I'll read verses 42 and 3. God said, for seven days you must live outside in these little shelters or tabernacles. All native-born Israelites must live in these tabernacles. This will remind each new generation of Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters uh, when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so in accordance with this command, God's people then every year would make for themselves these booths, as they're called. Sukkot means booth. Uh, or these tabernacles out of palm branches or with the boughs of some other leafy trees. And for seven days, they were to move out of the comforts of their homes into the yard where they would live in these temporary little huts, okay? And God commanded them very specifically, if you read the passage, that they were to make these little booths or huts uh, out of these branches, and they were to leave enough room in the uh, between the branches in the ceiling or the roof so that when they laid uh, down at night they could see the stars and enough room between the branches on the sides of these huts that the breeze could pass through and the idea was God wanted them to get the full impact of how their forefathers lived under the stars out in the elements all those years that they might now have this blessed land to live in and um the Jewish people would take some of the uh, harvest that God had provided and uh, the grapes, the barley, the wheat, figs, pomegranates, uh, olives, dates, etc. Take some of these things and they would bring them into these little huts and hang them as a reminder of how good 
God had been to them, not just to them at that time, but a reminder of how God had provided again for their forefathers all those years with the manna from heaven and water from the rock. As Paul said in, I think, 1 Corinthians, that rock is Christ. Uh, he said God providing them water out in the wilderness all those years in the desert. Now, uh, it must have been great fun for the kids, okay, to move out of the house and go camping for a week. Kids loved it, I'm sure. Parents, okay, uh, not so much, probably. I mean, they enjoyed the feast, no doubt. And, uh, but again, it was God's way of saying, look, I want you to do this every year in part as a memorial. Parents, I want you to not forget what your forefathers endured that you might have this good land. And the idea was when the family moved into this little hut, this booth, of course, the younger kids, maybe this was their first Sukkoth. And so they would ask the, the father, Dad, why are we moving out of our house and living in this little booth for a week? And that would give the father the opportunity to teach his children about this feast, laying the groundwork for the next generation to appreciate God and know what God had done so that they would grow up and be thankful and eventually pass along that information to their children. We have memorial holidays, right? We Thanksgiving is a time that we supposedly set aside to thank God for all that he's provided for us. We have Memorial Day, uh, Independence Day, Fourth of July. These are all memorial holidays in America, whereby we should be teaching our kids what their forefathers endured to give us the blessings we have today. Now, the reason, guys, I'm bringing, uh, I'm bringing so much attention to the Feast of Tabernacles is because John chapter 7 is built around this feast. The entire chapter is built around the Feast of Tabernacles, and it climaxes in verses 37 to 39, where Jesus actually says this feast pointed to him and makes application. Of course, all the feasts of Moses pointed to Christ. The first three in the spring, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, pointed to his first coming. The last three, trumpets, Yom Kippur, and tabernacles, pointed to, points to his second coming. And what event took place between the first and second coming of Christ? The church age, which we are now in. Uh, the church was literally born on the Feast of Pentecost. So all of these point to Jesus. And but John 7 is the chapter dealing with the Feast of Tabernacles. And we will look at uh, the climax in verses 37 to 9 uh, in a couple weeks. But very important chapter. I encourage you to read it numerous times. Now this morning, I want to take like a kind of an overview of the entire chapter. And I want to focus on um, the different attitudes that people had back then with regard to Jesus, who they thought he was, and, and the kind of people that had these opinions of who he was, okay? And they're still around today, not the same folks, but the same ideas, the same, uh, you know, beliefs about Christ. And I think that John 7 is a pretty good, uh, has, gives us a pretty good cross-section of the various schools of thought uh, that people gravitated to with regard to, to Jesus back then uh, and, of course, still today. So let's just look quickly at the differing opinions concerning Christ back then. Let me set the uh, context, okay? As we studied last week, the Feast of Tabernacles was uh, drawing near. And uh, so a lot of times uh, Jews made pilgrimages from the surrounding areas. In fact, Jewish law said 
that uh, with regard to the three major feasts, there were seven throughout the year, but three major feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, every able-bodied Jew, 20 and above, that lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem was required by law to go to these three feasts. So, of course, people from all over the, the, the area, especially, would come down to Jerusalem to celebrate these three feasts. And Jesus' half-brothers were going down to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus was in the Galilee. Okay, that's where he grew up, Nazareth. He was in the Galilee at this time. Now, his half-brothers, uh, as we said last time, didn't believe in him at this point. And were, you know, a little bit like, you know, why are you hanging out here in the backwoods? Galilee was rural. Uh, you know, very rural area. And they said, look, you claim to be the Messiah. Why, why don't you go down to the big city, Jerusalem, and, uh, and make it official with the uh, miracles and the big hoopla, right? What are, you, you know, what are you hanging out here for? Nobody who wants to be uh, made known openly hides out. Go down. He said, look, my time is not yet. Your time is always. You can do whatever you want, anytime you want. I'm on a very definite uh, divine timetable. We talked about this last week. So I'm not going up to the feast yet. So they went down, and then he went down. But let's pick up the story in verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? The Jews would be the Jewish leadership. By this time now, they were in full hatred mode and wanted to arrest Christ and, and, and have him killed. So they're looking for him. And uh, in verse 12, and there was much complaining, much controversy is the idea, among the people concerning him. Here's the first opinion of folks back then. Some said he is good. Some said he is good. That was a group that held to that opinion of Christ. He's, a, he's good. And you know what? Over the years I've heard this from different unbelievers. When you ask them, uh, well, who do you think Jesus Christ uh, was and is, you know, if you believe he's, and, you know, and, and a lot of times, well, you know, in fact, I saw a documentary where uh, some Christians went out and they were filming this and went uh, talking to people on the streets and, uh, you know, what, what do you think about Jesus? And uh, one guy gave the classic response I've heard from many unbelievers, oh, he was a good man, good man, you know, he was a good guy, okay, uh, moral man, he gave us a wonderful example uh, an ethic to live our life by. But was he God, the person asked this guy? No, just, just, just a good man. And I've heard that many times, no doubt you have too, when you ask people, what do you think? We're living in a very secular society now, okay? So when people ask somebody, if you were going out into the street and just asking folks, uh, you'd be surprised how many people would not come back with an answer that you have committed your life to, that he's the son of God. Uh, many people today would just consider, Jesus, if they even believe he existed, they would believe, they would say, well, he's a good man. He gave us a great moral ethic to live our life by. Well, then you have someone on the total opposite end of the spectrum, okay? End of verse 12, others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. He's a deceiver. Good man. No, he's not a good guy. He's a deceiver, okay? He's, with any public figure, you're going to have a variety. Okay, look at politics, okay? Who some people call and say, oh, he is great. Others say, eh, he's a deceiver. Well, Jesus was no different. And, uh, you know, he deceives the people. 
This, was, uh, this is the opinion today held by militant atheists who believe that Jesus Christ was a phony, a fraud, uh, that he was nothing more than a self-promoting egotist. This is kind of the um, idea behind the 1968 uh, book uh, by uh, Hugh Schoenfeld, The Passover Plot, where he basically uh, presented this idea that Jesus Christ was just a guy, and he went around saying a lot of lofty things about himself and, um, you know, shot his mouth off a little too much and upset uh, the people in power who killed him. And the disciples, wanting to perpetuate this celebrityism they were enjoying, decided to rob the grave of Jesus' body and then went around telling people he had risen from the dead. That's his perception of who Jesus is. And he's not alone today. He's not alone. So there are those who think Jesus was a deceiver. Then the third group uh, considered him to have been a prophet. Look at verse 40. Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. You know, others go a little farther in their, uh, their opinions concerning Jesus and claim that, well, he wasn't just a man. Uh, in the ordinary sense, he was a prophet uh, sent from God to teach us spiritual truth. And even though they claim he was special, again, a prophet sent from God to speak truth to us from God, they stopped short of calling him God in human form. This would include Muslims who believe Jesus Christ was a great prophet. He was the prophet before Muhammad, the final prophet, the greatest prophet. But they believe that Jesus was a prophet from God. There are others in the cults who believe this about Jesus. All of them stopped short of really believing that he was more than just a prophet. He was the son of God, God in human form. So um, these are some of the opinions, guys. Uh, that people had back then about Christ, even today, obviously. Um, what about the people that hold to these various opinions? It's good for us to kind of identify them because when you're witnessing to somebody, it's kind of good to know where they're coming from if you're going to tailor the gospel presentation maybe to, uh, to them so that sometimes you can't do it. You just let the Spirit lead, of course, uh, and you just do your best. But if you know if somebody is falls into one of these categories, maybe you could tailor the presentation a little bit uh, so that you kind of meet them on, on uh, uh, common ground and, and so on. The first group we see back then uh, were the intellectuals, verse 15. And the Jews marveled. This is the Jewish leadership, religious leaders. The Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? These were the intellectuals of their day. They rejected Jesus because he was a, an unlearned carpenter's son from Galilee. Again, uh, Hicksville, a rural area, uh, no universities, uh, not a center of higher learning, uh, and so on. And so in their minds... Because he was a nobody, an unlearned carpenter's son, uh, how could he possibly have anything to say of any value or importance? How arrogant, right? Um, there are many today who have kind of deified public education to such an extent that if a person doesn't have a degree of some sort, 
they are excluded from public discourse because they couldn't possibly have anything intelligent or meaningful to contribute. Most people in our society are writing off you guys more and more. Because we have placed such an emphasis on a secular degree that unless you have one, you're nobody. In fact, you're worse than nobody. You shouldn't even have a right to speak. There are those who are actively involved in taking away your First Amendment rights because they don't think you have anything to say of any consequence. Your faith is ridiculous. Keep it to yourself. You're a dummy. You're a Bible-thumping nobody. Uh, we don't want to hear what you have to say is what the idea today. Now, we can understand this in the secular world, but when it applies to religion, it can be especially dangerous. You see, these intellectuals, so-called, happened to be the religious leaders and teachers uh, in Israel at that time. And these so-called intellectual men couldn't understand how an uneducated man could speak with such wisdom and eloquence and authority when he taught. Here, let me paraphrase what they're saying. Where did this man study that he is expounding the law of Moses? Because that's where they found him, in the temple, expounding the law of Moses. Well, who is this guy? Okay, where did he study that he is teaching on the law? Of who taught him Hebrew? Because at this time, Aramaic was the common tongue, or Greek. A lot of folks didn't even know Hebrew back in Israel back then. I mean, who taught this guy Hebrew? He didn't go to our universities or seminaries. Cemeteries, seminaries. Uh, he doesn't have a degree. He's from, again, Hicksville, Galilee. So how can he be taken seriously as a teacher? You know, <laughs> didn't Solomon say nothing new under the sun? Same today. Do you realize there are many churches that wouldn't even let Jesus in the pulpit of their church to teach because he didn't go to their seminary? He didn't get a degree from their group? Oh, they would vehemently deny that. But you know what? I'm convinced if Jesus showed up and didn't identify himself as Jesus and just wanted to teach and it was obvious that God was with him and the, the anointing of God was upon him, they still wouldn't let him teach because he didn't go to their seminary. This is the same exact impact that Peter and John had on these very same men almost a year later when they were in the uh, temple area preaching and teaching about Jesus, the Sanhedrin sent the, the temple guard to arrest them and to bring them before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, to, uh, to give an account. And Peter lays a dynamic witness on these guys. It says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, these guys were blown away. And we read in Acts 4, verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. In other words, they didn't go to our seminaries or our universities, but they realized, listen, they realized they had been with Jesus. That is the only criteria for ministry, that you spend time with Jesus, and he is with you through the Holy Spirit. The fallacy was they had, they understood they had been with Jesus. No, they were still with Jesus. John 15, Jesus said, after I go back to the Father, I'll send the Holy Spirit, and I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. I'll be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. 
But these guys, you know, eight or nine months later, these same men are taken back by the power of God upon these nobody's lives, these fishermen from Galilee. Uneducated, untrained men. No degree. They just couldn't understand where the boldness came from, the power. It's the same reaction that men like that have today. Same, same reaction. Who believe that you can't serve God unless you have a degree from a seminary or something like that. I actually heard a well-known Bible teacher on the radio. He's a good guy. I'm not going to give you his name, but say this very thing. That if you didn't have a degree from some seminary or Bible university, you weren't qualified to be in ministry as a pastor. I don't know, did, they, did he miss what Jesus did with these guys? That's the whole point of this. These guys didn't have a formal education from a seminary. Of course, they had been with Jesus three and a half years, and he was still with them through the Holy Spirit. That's the only criteria for ministry. I mean, graduating from seminary doesn't make you a pastor, it makes you a graduate. It's the call of God upon a person's life. I remember when the Jesus movement started and the Holy Spirit began to move in a very powerful way. And, and you know, beach bums and, and hippies and drug uh, addicts and drug pushers started getting saved. And God began to lead them into starting churches. Many of them became Calvary Chapel pastors. And all of a sudden, without any formal education, without any degree, their churches were growing to 10, 5, 10, 15,000 or more, and it absolutely baffled the mainline church. Who sent delegation after delegation to Chuck Smith, the founder of the movement, of course, God was the founder, but the founder of Calvary Chapel, to ask him, Chuck, what is the secret? I mean, how are these churches all growing like this? Tell us the secret. Chuck says, there's no secret. These guys have gotten saved and filled with the Spirit. It's a work of God. Oh, yeah, okay, work. But come on, what's the secret? There's no secret. It's the power of God working through people who are wide open to him doing whatever he wants to do. You guys, you're kind of like old wineskins. You're set in your ways. God has to do it your way or you don't want it done. And God doesn't work according to what you want. He does what he wants. He's God. So you guys are old wineskins. He goes outside to get fresh hearts, fresh guys and gals to start working through. And he gets all the glory because he takes the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies, Paul said, to do his greatest work through that he gets the glory and not the instrument, right? But they were incredulous back then. Every time God moves, every time there's a move of the Spirit, and it always starts with, you know, grassroots stuff. God always goes a lot of times to the young people because their hearts are open still. He begins to save young people. And they become dynamic evangelists and missionaries and pastors for the kingdom. Look, when I see the men that are being cranked out um, by most of the seminaries today, men who are nothing more than educated pagans, seriously, educated pagans, who then go on to be leaders in churches across this country, I get sick to my stomach. 
these men who deny the authority of Scripture, like these so-called scholars in the Jesus Seminar, which I don't even know if they're still meeting, but they would come together every year to determine, okay, what God actually said in the Bible. They were sitting in judgment of God's Word. What He definitely said, what He might have said, what He probably didn't say, what He definitely didn't say, uh, judging God's Word to determine what was really His Word and what wasn't. These are the educated men, right? Or guys being turned out from these seminaries are going to pastor churches where they celebrate homosexuality and abortion and a lot of other godless things. And people follow. Because in today's mind, it sounds very positive. We don't want to judge. Well, Jesus said, don't judge the heart. John 7, 24, judge with righteous judgment, though. If a person's life is being lived in sin, you can judge that and say, look, the way you're living, you're not going to make it into heaven. Repent, accept Christ. I mean, that's the kind of judgment that saves souls. Not, hey, you're okay, I'm okay, just do whatever you want. We all love God our own way, and, you know, and, and, and he just looks at the sincerity of your heart. And if you've got a good, sincere heart, he'll get you into heaven. I don't, I don't read that in my Bible. I mean, maybe you've got a different version. Look, intellectual, intellectual unbelief is so much more insidious and dangerous when it masquerades under the guise of religion. We have a lot of men in the, in the pulpit today who are nothing more than the blind leading the blind. No wonder the church in America is in so much trouble. Well, okay, the next group we see emerge are what I'll call the mystics, verse 27. However, we know where this man is from. We know where Jesus is from. He's from Galilee. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Ooh, Wow. Look, those in the New Age movement and other mystics believe that there is coming a Messiah, Maitreya Buddha, who will be the latest reincarnation of the Christ Spirit. They believe that when he uh, that he will appear suddenly on the world scene, and no one will really know where he's from. He's just going to be there, He'll just appear basically. Nobody's going to know where he's from. And furthermore, they believe that he will usher in a glorious new age for mankind of peace. And prosperity, the age of Aquarius. Okay, Jesus was the uh, the reincarnation of the Christ Spirit for the Piscean age, which we're technically still in. They say there's coming another, uh, the going to be the latest then reincarnation of the Christ Spirit, Maitreya Buddha, for the new age, the age of Aquarius. They've been they've been expecting this for a long time, right? Back in the 60s, the group, the association, saying it's the dawning of the age of Aquarius. It's been a long dawn. I mean, that's a long time ago, but. You know, they've been looking for this guy for a long time. You know, most, if not all, these people believe that, uh, that believe this way, uh, don't accept Jesus the, uh, of the Bible as the Messiah. Why? Because Jesus taught that when he came back, he was going to judge the world before he established his kingdom. Now, folks that want to believe whatever they want don't want to be challenged like that. They, they don't want to believe that. Uh, the life that they're living, God will judge them for if it's not according to what the scriptures teach. So consequently, they reject any Messiah who is going to judge, because, you know, judging is bad. We should be open, 
tolerant, accepting of different uh, lifestyles, and so on. And so they reject Jesus uh, because, you know, they don't want to believe in a Messiah who is going to judge. Uh, Also, they don't want to accept a Messiah, Jesus, um, who makes demands on their lives and the way they live. And, uh, of course, one that says, I'm the only way into heaven. That's way too uh, intolerant and uh, narrow for them. Even though Jesus said, hey, the way into heaven is a narrow way. All right, only if you find it. Uh, It's not a tolerant path. It doesn't include many different belief systems and so on. Uh, I'm the only way. It's the way of the cross and so on. And so the biblical Jesus, guys, is way too intolerant for these mystics to believe that he's Messiah. And um, they reject him and are looking for another. Now, uh, this new Messiah is coming. He is coming. And um, he's not going to be Maitreya Buddha. Although he might say he's Maitreya Buddha when he gets there. I don't know. We know him as the Antichrist. The Antichrist. Jesus said, Me, your Messiah, you have not received. Another will come in his own name. I came in my Father's name, you've rejected me. Another will come in his own name, him you will receive. Ultimately talking about the Antichrist. So, you have the intellectual, you have the mystic. Number three, you have the factually ignorant. The factually ignorant. Verse uh, 41, end of the verse. Some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Jump down to verse 52. They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Now, that was just factually incorrect. Jonah came from Galilee. Nahum and Hosea came from Galilee. Some people think they know what they're talking about, but they don't have their facts straight. They don't necessarily mean you harm because they believe the misinformation and false doctrine that they have embraced. They believe it's true. And they share it enthusiastically, thinking they're helping you find the truth. But if what they believe is embraced by people and believed, leads to death. Years ago, there was a a story that came out of the uh, 1800s, the time when they still had uh, um, steam locomotives. And it was wintertime, and this lady was traveling, a young woman traveling with her infant baby somewhere. She had never been there, winter again. And um, she was very nervous. She didn't want to get off the wrong stop. And so she asked the conductor, will you please tell me um, the stop before I'm to get off? Will you please tell me so that, you know, I know where to get off? And he says, of course, certainly I will. And then he walks away, and uh, a guy sitting in front of her. It's a true story. A guy sitting in front of her turns around and says, Ma'am, he says, you know, the conductor, I travel this all the time, this route. The conductor, sometimes they get busy and forget. Look, I'll tell you, uh, when we stop, I'll tell you the next stop uh, that's your, so you, you can get off. Well, she said, oh, thank you. So the train's stopping, and it stops uh, again, and the uh, gentleman turns around and says, Now, ma'am, the next stop is your stop. So the train then eventually stops again, she thanks him, gets off the train with her baby. The train goes forward. 
Uh, after, uh, I don't know how many miles, the conductor walks through and says, where, where was the woman, where's the woman with the baby? And the guy said, well, I knew you got busy, and I, I told her, you know, that the next stop was hers, so she got off uh, at the last stop. And he said, you let her off in the middle of nowhere. That was a water stop. They reversed the engine, went back. By this time, her and her baby had frozen to death. She was the victim of false information. There are folks that don't mean you harm. I'm not saying, you guys, you know the truth. I'm just saying folks in general. There are people who think they're doing you a favor by passing along doctrine, information that they believe is true. You don't ever believe anything anyone tells you, including the stuff I tell you. You be Bereans. You go home, Acts 17, and you check everything against the Word of God to make sure what you're being told is accurate. A lot of folks just don't have their facts right. That's why they don't come to Christ. They reject Christ based on faulty information. Muslims think that when we Christians talk about Jesus as the Son of God, they believe what we're saying is that God had sex with Mary and produced Jesus. And to them, that is the worst blasphemy. Well, that's not what we're saying. God didn't have a physical relationship with Mary. The Holy Spirit placed into her womb supernaturally, without human contact, the seed of God, who became Jesus nine months later, who was born Jesus nine months later. So a lot of Muslims stay away from Christianity because they believe we teach a blasphemous doctrine about Christ. Others claim that uh, we Christians believe in three gods because we believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. No, we believe in one God manifest in three separate and distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So they claim that we're polytheistic. No, we're not. We're monotheistic. The first century pagan world, Roman world, a lot of them were grossed out by Christianity because they were told that during the communion service they were eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus, which meant they were cannibals. They, the Romans, a lot of them believed that Christianity, the Christians uh, uh, um, practiced cannibalism. And so they stayed as far away from it as they can get. We have to have our facts right. Okay? There are, there are well-intentioned people who are factually ignorant. And we, that's where we commit. We have to know the truth, right? Well, then you have uh, emerged from this chapter the spiritually proud and self-righteous. The spiritually proud and self-righteous. Verse 47. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the, or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Look, these are the people who don't see any need for Jesus. They believe they're right with God. You know, you've heard them. I'm a good person. Why are you a good person? I never killed anybody. Never robbed a bank. I'm okay with God. We're good. We live in a very, it's interesting, the more secular our society has gotten, it hasn't gotten less spiritual, has it? It's just gotten more spiritual in the spiritually demonic than in the truth. But you have a lot of people running around today who feel like they're so plugged in spiritually to whatever spirit they're involved in 
that they're they're fine. Don't don't talk to me about Jesus. I know I, I'm a spiritual I, woman. Tell me that after church one day, because she was upset about something I said I was teaching. Right? You know, something you know, came out and said, you know, uh, you know that you're you're teaching. You know, you, it's terrible what you said. If you didn't accept Christ, you're going to hell. Well, okay. Uh, I'm a very spiritual person. I said, well, what do you mean by that? Oh, she began to get into all the stuff she was into, new age, seances, uh, whatever she was. I, you know, I'm like, well, yeah, you're a very spiritual person. But there's two spirits. There are good spirits and evil spirits. And John the Apostle said, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. She didn't like that. She turned around and left. But many people today are so spiritually tuned in, quote unquote, that they feel they, they uh, uh, that they feel if they um, if they don't believe in it, it can't be true. Now, uh, verse forty-eight says, you know, it, you know, if he was really the Messiah, wouldn't we know it? The leader said to them, "Do you know that many of the Jewish people today reject Jesus Christ based on this very argument? If you ask a lot of Orthodox Jews today, why don't you think Jesus is your Messiah?" They will tell you if he, this is what they'll tell you, if he was really our Messiah, our leaders would have known it. The blind leading the blind. The next group I'll call the enamored and impressed yet clueless. The enamored and impressed yet clueless. Verse 45. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. So they find out Jesus is in the temple. They're looking for him, right? The Pharisees, scribes, the, the Jewish leaders, they're looking for him. All of a sudden they find out he's in the temple teaching. So they sent the temple guard to arrest him. When they walked in and started listening to what he was teaching, they got so enamored, they just, you know, they just, and then they, they forgot to arrest him. They went back and the chief priests were like, well, where is he? Oh, no man ever spoke like this man. Well, great. Wonderful. But did you receive him as your Lord and Savior? I don't know if they did. Maybe they, hopefully they did. We don't, we don't read that they did. Look, there are some that don't know what to do, which you don't know what to believe about Jesus, except they stand in awe of his words and recognize he was unique. Wonderful. He, he, he is unique. But Jesus Christ doesn't want you amazed. He doesn't want you enamored. He doesn't want you impressed. He wants you saved. And there's so many folks that think, well, I think Jesus was wonderful. I think he was unique. Well, that's great. So, yet in their mind, they think, well, that's all I need to do. Acknowledge he was unique and great. No man ever spoke like Jesus. Well, that's great. No one man ever did. That's not going to help you get to heaven, though, if you don't receive him, is the idea. And, of course, it leads us to the next group, the seeker. Verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Now, God bless Nicodemus. Uh, he was a seeker. And uh, these are the folks uh, that are seeking the truth and weighing the evidence. You know, ideas, you know, let's hear what he's got to say and weigh it against the facts, Okay. 
Again, that's wonderful to be open-minded like that. It's wonderful to want to take Jesus' words and you know, weigh them against the facts, judge the evidence, and so on. That's great. Just don't take too long to make a decision about it. Because the Bible says, right, it says, um, Tomorrow isn't promised to anyone. Today is the day of salvation. I think it's good when people will come to church and investigate the claims of Christ. I'm all for it. Just don't take months and years, okay? Because you don't know how much time you got left, right? And then, of course, you have the believer. The believer. Verse 31. Many of the people believed in him and said, I'll skip down to verse 41, this is the Christ. Of course, you always have those who have then come to believe. Jesus is the Christ. Now, I think that that presents a pretty good composite look at what most people think about Jesus and where they stand in relation uh, to him. Uh, that's all well and fine, what other people think about Jesus. Only matters what you think about Jesus, right? Where do you fit in? You know, Pilate said, what then should I do with Jesus who is called Christ? That is the question of the ages. What am I going to do with Jesus who is called the Christ. Jesus himself asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? After they told him the word on the street and what people were saying, he always personalized it and said, okay, but what, who do you say that I am? doesn't matter what your, your uncle thinks about Jesus or your mom or your spouse or, uh, or the guy you work with or whatever. It doesn't matter who, what anyone else thinks about Christ. It's got to be personal. What do you think about Jesus? Jesus always makes it, and we're done. We just, Jesus always makes it a personal issue. Everyone has to decide for themselves who he is and what they're going to do with him, about him. Again, Matthew 22, verse 42, Jesus said, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, whether you know it or not, that is the most important question you will ever have to grapple with. Was Jesus Christ just, just the son of a man? Was he just a human being? Or was he and is he the son of God, divine, God in human form? Why is that question so important? Because Jesus said in John 8, 24, if you don't believe that I'm Jehovah God, you're going to die in your sins. You can't get to heaven if you believe I'm just a moral man, a, uh, a, just a, a great teacher, a prophet if you stop short of not believing I am God incarnate who came down to die on the cross for your sins because without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin you need to have someone die in your place to get to heaven because you can't do it you're a sinner sinners can't die for sinners it has to be the sinless son of God the lamb of God who alone can take away the sin of the world look either Jesus was who he claimed to be, God in human form. Or else he was the most, listen, the most demented, deranged, demonic lunatic and liar that has ever lived. He can't be both. He can't be both. I mean, he was a radical. And radicals force people to take a side. That's why Jesus often presented uh, his teaching in a way that it would evoke strong opinions and emotions. He didn't want people sitting on the fence. He said things like, either you're for me or you're against me. There's no neutrality. 
with a radical. You're the former, you're against him, right? And Jesus wanted that. He wanted to produce a, a, a point of crisis in people's lives. To rock the boat. To force them to think a little bit. Now, if you're sitting there thinking this morning, well, I, I, I'm still looking at the evidence. I'm not sure who he is, okay? I haven't made a decision yet. Well, let me just break it to you. Yes, you have. Is if you haven't decided about him, you have. Either for me or against me, he said. Make it official. Be for him. Be for him, right? You can't be neutral about Jesus. And so it was, guys, back then. There was division. Back then concerning, I love John 7, it gives us a real composite look at what was going, the turmoil, the controversy, people arguing, okay? It's always division and controversy when it comes to Jesus. Again, what I'm calling a Jesus crisis. Let me just say this, and I'll close. What you and I come, the, the, the conclusion we come to with regard to Christ, who is he? doesn't affect Jesus. He is who he is. You could say he was the biggest demon from hell that ever walked the earth. It wouldn't change the fact that he's the son of God, savior of the world. It wouldn't affect him at all. It will affect you for all eternity. What you do with Jesus, what you believe about him, and whether you receive him as your Lord and Savior or you reject him, that's your decision. But the consequences will be eternal. So choose wisely what you decide. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came as truth and you proclaimed truth. Now, many people would rather embrace lies than come to the truth. But it wasn't for a lack of anything on your part that we don't have the truth. You gave it to us. And we just pray, Lord, that everyone in this room will make a decision to receive you as their Lord and Savior. That they would not leave this place today undecided or unsaved. That they would go from this place this morning a convert to Jesus Christ, bowing the knee to you, Lord, as their Savior and King, the one who now has control of their life. Father, we pray for these folks today here. We pray for our loved ones, that all of them would come to know you and be saved. And give us the grace, Lord, to be lights in the darkness, to lovingly go up to people and say, look, can I talk to you about Jesus? Who do you think he is? And then just lovingly and kindly give them the truth that will set them free. Lord, thank you. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Amen.